Well, good day and welcome to the podcast without a name. Uh, normally Dougal would be here, but Dougal's in China. So we've got a very special guest today. Um, his name Martin Rogers, who's the current Chief Investment Officer at KTM Ventures, um, IPO extraordinaire and cryptocurrency expert as well. Um, so we're gonna cover a few of those things today. Um, I just wanted to make the point quickly that it wasn't our intention when we started the podcast to make it a political one. It only kind of happened that way and it, that's just the way everything kind of turned out um, considering the lib spill was happening and obviously um, it was something that was kind of interesting at the time. So the object of our podcast is not so much to get into you know Trump versus the deep state or libs versus labor. It's more just to kind of um, talk to interesting people. So we've got one on today. Martin, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Um, on our show, we have a particular interest for people who go out and do their own thing, um, kind of take risks and, and do whatever else. Um, that's essentially what your, your role is. Um, do you want to kind of tell everyone just a little bit about yourself, how you started off in business or your first business experience? or? Um, yeah, sure, 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 Alexander. Um, I just have to say... Um, I'm sitting here with my six-month-year-old daughter, Zoe, giving her a bottle feed. So if there are any baby noises, it's from her, not me. <laughs> um, so I started out as a university student. I was doing two degrees, two bachelor degrees, one in chemical engineering and the other one in computer science. And I was your typical university student, had a bar job, maybe a second bar job or do some catering stuff. And... I was living essentially how most people live from paycheck to paycheck. And my friend at university, a guy named Yaron Shamgar, uh, Israeli guy, um, we went and rented a flat together and we, uh, you know, a few months into it, we saw an empty shop in Bondi Beach. Um, the developer wanted $4,000 plus um, GST a week rent. And so we offered $1,300 a week and we set on a short term basis instead of five years plus five years which yeah. is the usual terms for a rental contract or sure. commercial property, we were enrolling six months. So, um, you know, the landlord found somebody who'd pay somewhere close to $4,000. They could boot us out with, you know, essentially six months notice. Yeah. Now, there was one problem was that I didn't have enough money for the four-week bond. You know, right. I didn't, I didn't have $5,000 in savings. <laughs> so I had to go get these other, you know, uh, up-and-coming fashion designers. And I went along to... Bondo markets, Paddington markets, yeah, and um, I basically chopped up the floor space to these different fashion designers. People would share the um, rental, um, uh, basically a two times multiple. I get two percent cut on sales, and we call that Bondi Bazaar. We, we've got the sign right at right, a bit like Harper's Bazaar. Yeah, and I was making thousand, two thousand dollars a week. I'd go in in the morning, count the float. Um, we'd have some, uh, you know, backpacker girls who would work it. So maybe I was more interested in the girls. I don't know, um, but it was a, it was a decent sort of business. And I, all of a sudden, I found there was this other life out there of the entrepreneur. We we had basically two backpackers. We would pay, and they would call up. We'd just get a list of all of the vets around the country would call up and say, we're calling up from RSPCA pet insurance. We'd like to send you some brochures. We redid the brochure and we got um, a celebrity who supported the RSPCA. 
Simone Jade McKinnon. She was on a show called McLeod's Daughters. Right. I don't know if your viewers, you know, that old, no, but I it was, it. you know, it was, it was country like country practice, but for yeah. vets. And so should we put her on the front cover of this and we just printed off a bunch of brochures and and put a little plastic stand and, you know, call up the vet, speak the receptionist and say, hey, do you mind if we put that here? And it was kind of interesting. Uh, pet insurance penetration rate in the Australian market at the time was like 0.6% of pets were insured. Really? Yeah. And in the UK, um, you know, where insurance is much more natural. Insurance was actually invented in the UK. Um, pet insurance penetration rate was 64%. And Australia has, I think, one of the highest in the developed world pet ownership. So we thought, oh, there's something on here. Yeah, definitely. We didn't realize like there was a whole cultural barrier to get over. Um, essentially, um, you know, Australians don't believe in insurance. Yeah. They think she'll be right. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people were confused about what pet insurance was. So they thought, if Fluffy the dog died, you know, do I get a payout? You know, yeah. is it worth me, you know, putting a bullet through Fluffy? But, you know, it was really about paying 70, 80% of your vet bills. And most okay. people, when Fluffy gets hit by a car, then they hit with a $4,000 vet bill. They go, oh, wow, I wish I was insured. So yeah. it was about having that conversation. So that's why we would spend all this. We also, um, I would make sure I became friendly with the local post office manager down at Bono Beach a post office. And, you know, the excess amount of shipping we do at the end of the week. I'd basically package that all up and then we'd put that out there. So, you know, they, the post office actually doesn't work on per parcel. They work on weight behind the scenes. So he'd work out what the difference was. I would buy a case of beer for the for those guys for the week and, you know, they'd, they'd help out a up-and-coming entrepreneur. So, uh, look, after doing this, um, we're making a little bit of money. I was still a university student. I was doing my final year. And it's really spawned me on and started thinking about business. So I started reading the Australian Financial Review. And uh, there was an article that was in there about New York Stock Exchange seats selling at a 10-year low. So I thought, oh, wow. You know, the last time this happened, and I spoke to a stockbroker who had this, they made like 25 times their money. The Australian Stock Exchange was the first exchange to list on itself. Right. So there was like, these were for not-for-profit institutions. So just think philosophically, you've got the bastion of capitalism, and it's a not-for-profit. Yeah. You know, it's for the members. Yeah. Um, so the New York Stock Exchange had been running like this for 213 years. There's 1,333 seats. It um, paid, either you could trade on the floor or you could rent it out. A bit like yeah. a fixed income um, rental apartment in New York. So you get, I think, 60, 70,000 US dollars if you were to rent it out for the year. And that's how these open outcry people would work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so... In this article, there was a guy named Tom Corball, and he had bought the most amount of seats and was sitting on the board of the New York Stock Exchange, Canadian guy in Toronto. So I called him up. I went down to the, got a calling card called Canada and spoke with him. And, um, you know, he paid the highest amount. He paid 2.7 million US dollars for a seat. And now they're going about 900, 950,000 US dollars. And there's a big fear with everything going electronic, the whole open outcry system would be gone. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he was able to get me an allocation to buy four seats. So I had to go raise this money. And I didn't know how to raise money at the mm. time. So I, well, I mean, that's one of the things I was going to ask you. It's for people who are kind of, they've got their idea or whatever. They want to they want to build something. They want to make something. How raising finance is obviously a difficult part of it. 
Yeah, well, I, I learned really the hard way because I spent oh, maybe four or five months trying to raise money and I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even own a suit. Um, <laughs> I, I was just making all these mistakes and sort of people weren't taking me seriously. Yeah. And um, anyway, it didn't happen And uh, for me to raise the money. But what did happen was New York Stock Exchange listed on itself, went up 25 times. Yeah. And it really hurt me because I knew I was something on a winner and I thought it was going to be the best opportunity I ever had in my entire life. Yeah. And I was really down on myself and I thought, you know what, I wanted to move out of Bondi and I wanted to um, you know, put on a suit and go do what's called corporate advisory, you know, help out with finance and Yeah. Um, and there was one person who believed in me, thought I was could do. So I went and joined uh, the guy who was a lawyer and he's doing some corporate advice, a little boutique place. And um, he would do the junior mining companies on the ASX and he had a few biotech companies. Yeah. So that's how I got um, into what I did next. And yeah. I understood biotech from my chemical engineering part, sure. university. So it was a very, very interesting transition. Mm. Um, and at about 12 months into doing that, I uh, ended up taking over a company uh, I was really on its knees in 2007, a company called Prima Biomed. Yeah. It was about half a cent at the time. And um, so uh, through myself, I took basically all my savings and some other people. We did a rights issue for $1.8 million and really turned it around. Um, you did a what, sorry? A rights issue. So okay. um, you can underwrite a rights issue. So it gives everyone who is a shareholder the ability to buy shares. Yeah. And the people who don't buy the shares, um, they they get given to the underwriter and the underwriter has the option to take that up. Okay, cool. So that was um, something I did and became a CEO for five years. So did you identify that company as a kind of a target company almost or did it just kind of fall on your lap a little bit or I saw, I saw a mixture of the both? I saw a structural way in which a rights issue was put together with the options rights issue and that was sort of attractive to the smaller end brokers yeah and i also saw on the other side there's some really good assets and, and i thought cancer immunotherapy is where the future is going to be yeah. so they had four assets um and the company was trading you know in a few million dollar market cap like two three four were these million. were these assets like ip assets like yep. patents patents and they had some clinical trial data yeah so it was some interesting stuff. It all came out of what was called the Burnett Institute in Melbourne. So they'd spun out this um, and they'd gone through a bit of a scandal in the past. So, uh, you know, there was the ability to do a turnaround. So I effected a turnaround over the space of five years as a CEO, built a team who raised around about $100 million. The stock went all the way up to around about 42 cents along the way. Um, so, uh, you know, from there I made my first decent set of money. and yeah. I left that in 2012, um, and I got married. My wife got a my wife got a stint with the Wall Street Journal, so moved to New York, and I um, invested in and started working with a hedge fund out of New York called Lynn Partners that made some money out of Prima Biomed, you know, in terms of being an investor. Yeah. And that's when I weren't on the other side of the aspect. So I went from scientist, university student to little tiny startup entrepreneur going into the stock market and doing the management side of things and now I've gone around to being into the funds management end sure. and how the investor works and I thought you know some investors would make like 10 million dollars and you, if you're a CEO you, you might get hey if you're it's a good week you might get 300 500 thousand dollars a year but like you know in this fund management end, it was it's, it was really really neat 
Yeah. Now, admittedly, $10 million is given to the investors of the fund, not sure. to one individual, unless you own 100% of the fund. Yeah. But it was something I saw, there's some, some real leverage and something I kind of wanted to do. I wanted to take what I understood in terms of technology and science and merge that with capital markets. And, you know, it, it was a, sort of a journey to find out what you wanted to do. And that's what I did. <laughs> you know, it, it all came from sort of real disappointment and not being able to raise capital at first. How much of your early experience uh, running those those early businesses do you think uh, contributed or helped kind of later on when you're running as a uh, running that your first kind of biotech company um, and then into the hedge fund as well? How much did you, did you take a lot from those early experiences and were you able to apply that later on or was it kind of you're still kind of learning as you're going and it's like this kind of ever shifting. Yeah, that malleable type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. You you learn so much. You and like I think running a little tiny business um, when um, Lehman Brothers collapse and the GFC hit, I really needed to crunch down on expenses in late two thousand eight, early two thousand nine. So I just called up all the suppliers and it said, look, you know, it's either you're going to take a haircut, twenty five, fifty percent. I just I named that haircut to what we owed our creditors, um, or you know, we're not going to pay you. We're going to put you on the end. Like it was basically a little bit of a bit of a threat, and the only everybody agreed. The only one who didn't agree was the ASX on their listing fees. You know, obviously, if you had your listing fees, it's either you you take the payment or you're not. Yeah. So, um, and and that was fine actually. Being able to, you know, preserve cash flow and wade through a storm when the capital markets turned, I was able to do really well from that. So it's kind of like a, a really good experience from that and. I realized there was time when you could apply capital and other times when you need to preserve capital. Um, I also realized how much I didn't know and how poor I really was, I suppose, as well, um, through that process. And I, um, I've got a really sort of uh, humble appreciation of those people who go out and apply themselves within a business. I've yeah. really accepted that. So then obviously, I guess that kind of evolves naturally almost into venture capital. Um, You've had experience, I guess, in a hedge fund. You've had experience running your own companies and dealing with, I guess, clients and investors. Mm. Um, it's almost like the, a natural fit, I guess, moving into kind of venture capital, would you say? Yeah, so I came into venture capital for taxation reasons. Yeah, I was going to ask you about So the, um, the government put in place, I don't know if you remember, in 2016, there was this whole innovation ideas push and so in 1st of July 2016 Parliament put in place legislation allowing investors who had uh, what's called an ESVCLP early stage venture capital limited partnership who wouldn't pay any capital gains tax income tax and you get 10% rebate off your income tax bill but you had to incorporate as a limited partner general partner you couldn't have more than 30% of the fund um, you had to have a minimum of $10 million committed capital okay so I had to apply a skill set I had there and I go, great. But I knew that um, I was investing before an IPO of a company. So if I could do this you know, three or four years later, then I wouldn't pay taxes on the other side as well. Yeah. So that was kind of really, really neat. So that's kind of, I guess, how you got into it. Um, you're still there. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you... Kind of, well, do you want to do you want to tell maybe like what's the what's the obviously you have different kind of venture capital funds with different uh, objectives, yeah. kind of different set of um, 
like some very early stage, like kind of seed capital almost, varying all the way to kind of later stage. That's right. And then so, but you're, from what I understand, kind of in the, somewhere in the middle, would you say? Yeah. So we, so it's sort of the pitch you have to investors, but you end up, you would think of it as if it's your own money and what's, you know, what's the sort of edge that you can provide? So like the edge we can provide is, you know, we can get into a company quite early stage on, um, help them go to the next level in terms of um, incubate up the management and corporate governance things that they need to do. So corporate governance means stuff on the board and, you know, bringing auditors and, you know, new processes and risk management style. But also, after you do all of this, then having something that would be ready and presentable for the early stage of being a stock market listing. So that's sort of like liquidity. And like we wouldn't sell on the first day after the IPO. Usually you'd sell within the first couple of years. Okay. So, you know, there was that point in time. So like that was really sort of the edge. And it was hard to explain because, um, you know, venture capital comes in many different flavors, as you pointed out. And we were just didn't really want to change how we invested and how we were making money. We just wanted to take advantage of this tax structure. So we had to articulate that to investors yeah. who would come in. You know, like you need to put a, a, pow- a presentation deck PowerPoint yeah. of what you're doing and you take the format what everyone else uses, I suppose. Martin, you wrote an article, uh, I think it was in the Australian Financial Review. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically it was saying that Bitcoin particularly is safe, sustainable and here to stay. Sure, sure. Do you do you still believe that? Are you still kind of long on cryptos, particularly Bitcoin? Yeah, so so Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency and the reason I wrote that article was actually Elmo Funky Cooper wrote an article about how um, Bitcoin was just trollops and um, um, you know, it's just used for criminals and money launderers. Now there's there's a few problems with that like firstly um, you know, he'd just been the CEO of a company that got the biggest money laundering fund in Australia. Um, and the second thing is, there's a public blockchain behind Bitcoin. And you can see all the transactions. Yeah. So some academic work has shown that how it um, hadn't had that uh, impact and wasn't used for money laundering. And the third thing is, um, you know, Chulips was actually a bit of fake news. How, what happened in 1627. Really? Yeah. So uh, there's only 27 people who traded um, a Chulip between 300 guilders to 5,000 guilders. And people were shareholders in a company called the Dutch East Indies Company, so the first company to be floated on the stock market. Was That, that was in Amsterdam as well, wasn't it? Yep. That, that was the original stock exchange. That's right. So the people who were the shareholders were so wealthy, to show off your wealth, you had a little tulip on your, on your table in your kitchen and things like this. But there was a drought in 1627. So if you're really wealthy, you really showed off, you, you got yourself a tulip. Yeah. There's also a future mile up market in tulips because you could take the bulb but not germinate it and germinate it the next year so right. it was a kind of a weird sort of thing anyway someone wrote like a joke article a bit like the chaser or onion about it at the time and then it was sort of this myth perpetuated so that's why i wrote this article and, and what i did was i got um, some quotes one from a guy named marco santorini was an international monetary fund you know talking about how it was just demonstratively false um, that it's just used for money laundering, and um, also from Professor David Yarmick, who a Harvard uh, professor, and you know got quotes from both these guys, and actually put some pizza uh, uh, parts around it. It's also interesting. Bitcoin had had been long enough in the tooth for it to be able to survive as well. It wasn't the first digital currency, but it had a real breakthrough to it. Uh, so I talked about um, 
you know, breaking the Byzantine generals problem. Yeah, what is, what is that problem? Because I, I saw that and I was wondering what that was. Yeah, so, so basically uh, it's, um, it's a bit of game theory and computer science. So for the computer science nerds, it's, it's really out there. And essentially it's a theoretical component that there's the fort and um, everyone's trying to get into that fort. So you have multiple different armies that need to attack the fort all at once. But amongst these different armies, one of the generals could be a traitor. So how do you get a message to all of the generals to attack the fort at once and not have that compromised? That's called the Byzantine generals problem. Right. So what Bitcoin did was it invented a thing we call blockchain and it put the same ledger of what was transacted to prevent what's called double spend. Because you're in the electronic world of electronic money and what it did was it duplicated that database in many times in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion. Okay. And then a consensus algorithm would go through and see, make sure that that ledger or that database contains the same items. And one that didn't, or something that would have fraudulent, would be rejected. So that's how the Byzantine General's problem was solved um, using the blockchain. And it was a real breakthrough because it means you could do real-time transfer of the Bitcoin with next to no fees. and. Right. Uh, so it spawned an entire area of one other cryptocurrencies, but also technologies based on the blockchain as well. Cool. Um, would you be able to, obviously, I, I feel like, uh, particularly in the past, I guess, kind of 18, 24 months, cryptocurrencies has just been kind of the thing to talk about. Sure. Um, and also for people to invest in with kind of not uh, a real substantial idea of what it actually is. That was the impression I got, was that everyone was talking about it, but not, not many people knew actually what it was or how mm. it worked. Um, like, I mean, you saw that kind of the, these massive returns coming out of uh, extremely short periods of time and kind of everyone just jumped on. Yeah, um, sure, sure. And, and look, so I touched on it in the article and I basically said, look, most of what Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies use for right now is speculation. Speculation is not such a bad thing because for something to be transferred, it needs to have value. And how do you find that value? You find it through speculation. So, um, you know, it's this real chicken and egg that comes out there. Yeah. And I think um, the second thing is from what, what you want to do in terms of um, an investment mantra is, look, you know, if you want to have a, a little bit of uh, cryptocurrency in your portfolio, you need to think about everything else that's in your life. And, you know, do you have a savings plan? Do you have an investment plan? And, you know, uh, cryptocurrency should be a very tiny part of your portfolio. You know, you, you no one should go in and pour everything into cryptocurrency. And I think there's another sort of weird thing that's happened is that it's an asset class as cryptocurrency is that was first encountered by and made money for by retail investors. It's usually institutional investors get in and then they hear uh, it's heard about in the media and then the retail investor comes through. So this, the reverse thing happened here. So it opened up a lot of questions about, you know, who should be investing, um, sophisticated investors. Usually it's run by, you know, in developed world governments like the SEC in America or ASIC in Australia. And they say, you can only buy if you're a wholesale sophisticated investor in Australia. It's called yeah. Section 708 of the Corporations Act. In the US, that has the same sort of thing. But here you had the, and, and basically said, look, for, to speculate and make money, you can only be rich in the first place. Yeah. You know, there's sort of a nanny state that happens with sure. this. So with cryptocurrency, because it, you know, it wasn't put under the guise of regulators, because it wasn't seen as a stock or a security, it kind of fell in between a security and a currency and a commodity. 
um, the people who made money out of it were the pure retail. So like, there's a whole bunch of questions that are raised up here. Now, I think it's quite evolving now. Goldman Sachs invested quite heavily into a cryptocurrency exchange called Polynex through a fintech they own called Circle. They spent 400 million US dollars. So they get the audit firm PwC to come behind it. Um, and then they go see the regulators, the SEC, um, who say that you need to be a FINRA broker dealer with an alternative ATS license. So basically all of these sort of regulation gets heaped on top of it yeah. and the establishment players are coming into it. So it's kind of interesting watching yeah. the whole space evolve, really. Uh, I, I feel like um, kind of as well, it's because by, I guess by nature it's... it's um, it is in, in it masks people and, and the way that they transact, mm. um, and that's kind of the whole nature of I guess a cryptocurrency is the idea that you can't really see who's on the other end. Um, that's actually not true. Really? Yeah. So, um, uh, cryptocurrency is not anonymous; it's pseudo anonymous. Right. So if you've onboarded yourself, so if you purchase with say Australian dollars through an exchange that's KYC you, then that transaction is stored on the blockchain and it's there forever. Right. Okay. It's one of the biggest myths out there. Actually. Really? Yeah. Okay. So don't do anything illegal with cryptocurrency, folks. Really? They can still find it? <laughs> yeah, it's there forever. Wow. Okay. And there's there's people in jail right now, including FBI agents who have stolen cryptocurrency or are in jail from this. Really? Mm. Wow. They, they, they stole it from um, uh, Ross Ulbrich from the Silk Road. And when they prosecuted him, they found it was a Secret Service agent and an FBI agent that had stolen it. Yeah. And they actually first did the analysis around a, uh, the public blockchain of Bitcoin. Wow. Like I said, there's lots of misinformation out yeah, there. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Well, I mean, that's exactly what we're here for. This is, um, you know, to kind, of, to kind of bust these myths. Um, where do you see, I guess, the future of blockchain? Because obviously, you know, every day it seems like we see some industry, some new uh, firm incorporating blockchain, not just in uh, kind of cryptocurrencies or whatever it is, in kind of some other aspect of business and everyday life. Yeah, so basically... Where there is people who are sitting in the middle, taking a big middleman fee, and it can become electronic, a blockchain in theory could solve this. And yeah. So a cryptocurrency is basically a public blockchain, so it's decentralized or quasi-decentralized, and it's put on a peer-to-peer -peer network. And people are remunerated by mining or maintaining that network to do that consensus to see all of those transactions are verified. And there's a private blockchain, which is just run by, say, a corporation. And that's essentially a database. And why would you go about doing a database? Because parties may or may not trust each other. Okay. That's on the other side of things. So a lot of corporations are look testing this, piling it, but it's still very early days at the moment. And you need to have sort of buy-in from both the corporate or the political body to do it. But look, almost every sort of aspect where you need to have a central depository or a database, it could be a good benefit from it. On the other side, maybe it would just help um, you know, organizations, governments, or corporations update their databases. Maybe that's the other thing to do it. You, know, you can be skeptical and bullish at the same time. It's quite a funny thing. Really? I always, yeah, I do find it interesting. Um, I mean, you read kind of governments cracking down on crypto cryptocurrencies uh, exchanges particularly and i've also seen kind of the price of a lot of these um these so, currencies yeah so, so correlated I, to kind of the regulatory um, i i think when you see when you hear governments cracking down like some governments are very totalitarian in nature for instance china 
ban cryptocurrency exchanges. And they have a really um, big problem in terms of money going out of China. They want to stop money going. And it's not, it's not about a money laundering issue. It's just they want to keep money inside China. So there's capital controls. Sure. You can't take more than $50,000 out of China at one point in time. Yeah. And, you know, if you're part of, you know, the former regime and, you know, you've obtained your money, God knows how, and you want to move it out, they've made it very, very difficult. And cryptocurrencies, they're borderless. So it's able to then to move it out and it's without permission. It's what they call censorship resistance. Um, so China really crack down on that and they banned that September last year um, but like say a country like America they haven't banned the cryptocurrency exchanges they're, they're quite actively encouraging it however they want things monitored like KYC AML and where those sort of governments really crack down is like I touched on beforehand they don't want with the new coins what they call ICOs yeah. they don't want them marketed to investors particularly unsophisticated investors because when people lose money which they eventually do they turn to the government and complain so those sort of governments like the traditional western governments they see it banning from that side of things okay or not banning but they want to uh, you know control it and they want either people to lodge a prospectus for instance or you know you need to be clearly that it's not a security so there's that element to it as All well right. do you think there should be kind of uh, more or, or less regulation in terms of cryptos as a general rule? Well, so so there's different kind of cryptos. Firstly, say Bitcoin is um, not deemed to be a security, for instance, in the United States, so that's fine. You can buy and sell Bitcoin and you can use it for transactions. You know, you can, you know, as long as you KYC yourself at a licensed exchange. And KYC is about know your customer. Know your customer, yes. So that's where you show your ID and yeah. who you are. Okay, cool. And that's why I said beforehand, you know, if you've bought Bitcoin and KYC'd yourself and you've done something illegal, I don't know. Um, gone Bought drugs on the Silk Road or... That, that's right. Or something. You, could, you could look back at that blockchain. You could show that transaction, that point back to an exchange and that exchange would send, oh, we've, we've this person is... Alexander Cameron. Oh, yeah. great. And he yeah. lives at this address here. He's probably you're probably standing there holding your ID in that picture. Yeah. And they'll come knock on your door. So that's that's how they that's how they want to view it. Um, I actually think, um, and then you have that's for like Bitcoin. But then say there's a new uh, coin. So some of these coins are sort of circumventing the standard way in which you'd raise money for a security. So you know if you call it the Alexander coin and you wanted to raise money to fund your podcast if you didn't construct it right then it actually would be a security you're just circumventing it and that's fine you just say look I'm just tokenizing or I'm creating a cryptocurrency out of my security but the, you'd have to raise money for that in the first instance with a prospectus right so that's where the government sees those regulations okay that is interesting that is interesting do you uh, have much kind of uh, exposure uh, as a in in your day to day at KTM to cryptocurrencies or actually no and look we um I've got a diverse set of investors so some are pro cryptocurrency and some are anti and it and it's it's a bit reli like religion actually it's kind of funny how people um uh, can be so anti it so I just have to be careful and you know so we just. A little bit conservative so we bought an exchange they make money as each time someone trades it they make about 50 basis points yeah so you know they they just sort of the middle piece of infrastructure the mining boom they call it picks and shovels 
Um, you know, we invested in a, a blockchain company called Identity that does a private blockchain, first customer being HSBC. So they attach the anti-money laundering component called the purpose of payment. They automate that. So when you do your internet banking with HSBC, that is put in as an attachment on that message, the Swift message that goes across. And that's got to do with um, Swift computers, which I can, you know, really bore uh, your listeners with something really nerdy about... Um, no, no, the nerdier they... the better. Nerdier <laughs> the better. I remember when you came in to um, do, uh, you guest lectured at my uh, finance uh, lecture, um, you said the first thing, oh uh, yeah, by the way, I, I describe myself as a bit of a nerd, so I'm just super into all this stuff, so I don't really care. <laughs> well, um, so the Swift message, it's built on um, 130 characters and it's a standard since 1973. So you can't put too much information across there, yeah. but how banks message to each other and, and do the settlement of international money transfers has to be done through this messaging system. So they have really good ways in which they can balance the monetary value, but the thing that they haven't kept up with because it started in 1973 is the ever burdensome requirements from the regulators about showing that the money is not being used for funding terrorism, yeah. money laundering, and so forth. So you need extra information from that. So banks have built systems around this, and this was just a blockchain additional solution that, that could be just overlaid on top of the Swift message. Cool. Cool. I bet um, our listeners hopefully will be you know going home and looking at Swift and the um, how they how banks message each other and all that type of stuff. Now, just finally. Because uh, I guess we kind of covered most of the stuff that I was keen to cover. Um, oh, well, I guess it's kind of two parts. Um, what does a day kind of in the life of Martin Rogers look like now? Or a kind of a day in the life of a, a CIO of a venture yeah. capital firm look like? So I think, um, you know, we look at about, on average, about two companies a day. We, so we take a meeting with those two companies. You just have to sit and read a lot of information. You've got to... Um, and then you also have to spend some time with your current portfolio companies and helping with their, with their company growth or development. So that's typically what my day is. It's about, about one third to half, one half my day on the phone. Really? That's interesting. That's interesting. Do you like it? Like, is it, I, I guess you'd have to kind of love it in a sense yeah, to yeah. do it. Um, I mean, you get all these guys who are coming in and, you know, they've got their idea, they've got the, that they've been working on for however long and they like... And you have, they, to, you have to say no a lot of the time. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's hard dealing with that. And sometimes you like something that's really good but might not fit your fund. Sure. Or you might see another way in which you could do it but you don't have the focus or energy to do it. So it's really complicated about the reasons why you're doing these things. And sometimes you just miss out on things. Yeah. And the third thing is you can really want something and you're not the venture capitalist or the investor that they want at the end of the really? day. And that's even worse because that really hurts you. Like that drives your sure. ego insane. Sure. How often do you get that? Because I mean, I feel like it would be more of the time they're kind of, they'll take what they can get or is there some that are, some kind of businesses that it, are just... It, 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 it's just potlucks, but it's probably happened to me half a dozen times in the last 12 months. <laughs> I guess it keeps you kind of hungry and focused, I guess. Yeah, and also I'm probably not the top VC out there in terms of a name, what people want on their register as well. Like I'm, I'm kind of an unknown. I'm relatively new. Who's the, who's the, who are the top guys? Oh, look, you know, in Australia, you, you couldn't go much further past Blackbird. Um, in America, Andreessen Horowitz, you know, so uh, Sequoia Ventures, you know, there's some really good firms out of America that people really, really would like to say. And it's a bit of an ego thing saying, oh, yeah. I've got... Sequoia as my investor. Yeah. Uh, sell partners. We've done really well in Australia. So, 
You know, that seems like you've made it as a company if you take those guys in. Sure. So I want people then to suddenly think KTM Ventures, you've really made it by taking sure. it as an investor. Sure, but I guess it's also, there's still um, a long way to go, Once even once you've got the funding. Like, how what percentage do you reckon of the ones that you take on, or just in general, if you don't, you know, in general, kind of don't work out? So if you're generally as a fund manager, if you're, if you're winning 60% of your investments, you will have a superior outperformance long term. Yeah. So you, that's what you have to really think of. And there's a whole bunch of portfolio theory. It's been done academically yeah. about this. Uh, when you're really small, you can be quite selective. But as you scale, like if you want to take in $100, $200 million of venture money um, and scale that, then you have to go more towards that portfolio theory. Yeah. So I'm on the smaller end. So the investors who come in the first two, three funds, they make extraordinary outsized returns because yeah. we have to be so picky in who we can come into. But then it doesn't work on, on another level of scale. Is your uh, kind of return structure similar to that of a, a hedge fund in a way like you kind of say? No, no we're, we're a classic venture fund. So we just return money on cash on cash basis. So when we cash out, usually within three, four years, then we return that money to investors. So the typical hedge fund, you, you'll get priced daily or monthly, and you can sell the units in the fund. You know, if you buy, say, a long short fund, for yeah. instance, credit fund. So, you know, uh, we're classic committed capital, we're more private equity venture capital fund in that, in that instance. So usually you get higher returns, but it's not liquid. Right. Like that is for the investor. Okay, cool. Cool, cool. Now, um, what would your advice to kind of someone my age or younger than me or kind of yourself if you were looking back on it I guess you know 20 years ago or yeah so um, I say if you want to go and be an entrepreneur I'd say go do it I think um, you know have a a shot at something I, I find the best entrepreneurs that we see are ones who have a little bit of domain experience so they've gone and worked in a certain industry so I had a guy came in my office this week you know, he worked project managing cranes coming into building sites and thought, instead of putting stuff up on a whiteboard, I want to go do an IT company in the base of this. You yeah. know, he had good contacts, so he knew all the different building construction managers for all these building sites in Sydney and Melbourne. So he knew that the problems that they had, you know, if there was wind and the crane couldn't get there, then they had to get the sand and the cement and all these other things. So if there's a better way to coordinate it, and, you know, people receive a text message all at once and, you know, it was pretty neat. So he... He had already built out a series of contracts, and he went and built that, you know. And he looked like a looked like a Maori a crane operator, but like yeah. you know, he was a guy that took an idea on a building construction site, being there for a few years, and applied that into as an entrepreneurial business. So, you know, if you've got some domain experience and you can do a startup, I think that'd be really good. So, if someone's younger, you know, I'd go work for somebody, or even work for a startup, get get some good ideas from there. Like it's very rare that someone comes out in the age of twenty and boom has the new breakthrough thing. But also, um, don't be disencouraged. You know, uh, you know. I started out younger. You, there's, um, you get age discrimination, um, yeah. and you just have to deal with it. I suppose you know, there's a whole me who, uh, me too, and all these sort of movements out there. But I remember quite painfully at the time being very discriminated because I was young and told I couldn't do it. So uh, think about that. You know, if you do have that skill set to do it, that people who really are successful start really young and do that so you think like bill gates mark zuckerberg jeff bezos all of these people have done really well quite early on yeah cool cool well i think that uh, that pretty much covers it um 
wanted to give a, of course, a shout out to our sponsors, uh, My Style Suits. Um, if you need a suit rental job for a job interview, a formal uh, delivery in one to two business days, $80 to, or $100 for a two week rental. So thank you to My Style Suits. Um, but more importantly, thank you to Martin Rogers for coming on the podcast. I really, really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Alexander. And um, if anyone reaches out, I'm on Twitter, Martin F. Rogers. Yeah, perfect. Awesome. Thank you, Martin.